I'll be honest, you know, there's some big churches that are, are notorious chewing up and spitting out staff, right? So why are, they, why are they doing this? Why are they chewing up and spitting out staff? It's because they've lost the joy component to the leadership and they're not leading with maturity. And so in the absence of joy and maturity, the only thing left to you is fear. podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming and I am your host and today on our show we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. There are tons of books out there today talking about leadership. Go to Barnes & Noble or go on Amazon, put in leadership. You're going to get thousands of books. Everybody has their own different leadership theory. But rarely do you find someone who can actually go about understanding the brain science behind leadership and why people do what they do. And it comes down to relationships and joy. Really, that's what it comes down to. It's not about intimidation and fear. It's not about manipulation. It's about really caring for people and understanding our capacity and desire to do things that bring us joy. And that's why this book that we're going to be talking about today is so important. We brought in Marcus Warner to talk about his book that he wrote with another one of our guests, Jim Wilder, called Rare Leadership. And Marcus is the queen of acronyms, and he's going to develop that in the show. We're going to learn more about it. But today, I want you to listen in because we're all leaders in one way, shape, or form, whether we're talking about in our homes, our workplaces, church, or any other organization that we're a part of. We are either being led or we are leading, and oftentimes it's both. But how do we do that in a way that is honoring to God? If we're to follow Christ in all of life and see his lordship play out in all of our lives, that includes our leadership. And it's not just about getting the right results. It's about loving the people that we're interacting with, that we're leading each and every day. We all fall short. We all have to admit that right off the top. But with what Marcus and Jim are talking about, we can find the skills to help be better leaders where we are. That's why I brought Marcus back onto the show that we can talk about this very important book that's making its way around to a lot of different leaders in so many different spheres right now. But I also want to let you know that we can have conversations like this because of listeners like you. We're a listener-supported ministry. And we're a lot more than just a podcast. We have the vidcast that's going on right now. We're developing courses. We want to be able to serve you and help renew the church in the West through what we call the Missio Holistic Approach. We believe that God has laid out four different ways that we can learn so that we might be able to fulfill the mission of God where we are. This world is changing so quickly that we need to be able to learn from our brothers and sisters around the world as they're fulfilling the mission of God, to go back to church history, to make sure that we're avoiding the mistakes, and also draw inspiration because we know that history is cyclical and that we can learn from them. We are facing, it seems, unprecedented things. And while we have technology that's grown exponentially, there are still core principles at work. And we want to make sure that we avoid the mistakes of the past, but also draw inspiration from those who have done so well. 
And of course, we want to go back to the scriptures all the time because it's the word of God that transcends everything and that transforms lives. And it transforms us deep down into who we are so that we might be able to fulfill the mission of God where we are with all of who we are. That's what the Missio Holistic Approach is about. And we invite you to learn more. We're going to be having classes starting up in the first quarter of 2023. Go online to apolloswater.org and make sure to check that out in the next few months. And as I said before, this ministry is only possible because of listeners like you. And we couldn't do this without your support. That's why we are looking for more watering partners around the world to help us fulfill the mission that God has placed upon us. We want to see God receive glory in everything. We want to see his kingdom continue to expand. And we want to see people not living lives in the doldrum, but experience the joy and and victory through Christ who has saved them and called them unto himself. That's why we need and ask you to prayerfully consider being one of our watering partners. And we have an incentive for you. Any amount you give gets one of the books that have really impacted us. We'll send that to you right away. If you become a monthly watering partner, you'll be eligible for our classes that are starting up in the first quarter. And here's a a big incentive for you that if you give $500 or more, Our friends at Tyndale House Publishers have agreed to send you an NLT Illustrated Study Bible. It's an amazing Bible, and you can give it to someone as a gift. It's awesome. Kevin O'Brien, our executive editor, had a part in that, and it's, it's a phenomenal Bible, and I would encourage you to check it out. But with that in mind, we want to get to my conversation with Marcus Warner as we talk about rare leadership. Happy listening. Marcus Warner, welcome back to Apollo's Water. Hey, it's good to be here, Travis. I had a good time last time. Uh, I think I shared way too much personal stuff, but you do that to people, I think. so. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if that's a gift or a curse or what, but I do find that maybe we should start calling it, I don't know, podcast confessions, something like that, where people start just admitting (laughs) different things in their life. I know. My son was proud of me for admitting that I watched anime. So we did that. <laughs> it was a bonding moment for the two a, of you. It was a bonding moment. It was good. Yeah. You know, when I, I went back to edit that show and I, I started to laugh again that you admitted it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. You've done this before, but we're going to do it again. Are you ready for the fast five? Let's do it. Here we go. Number one, what was your favorite toy when you were a kid? It was my Stingray bike. I rode it everywhere, went to the park with it, rode in trails, pretended I was Daniel Boone. I mean, it was, you know. <laughs> Daniel Boone on a dirt bike. <laughs> I'm just saying, I, it was my horse, you know. So I was like, oh, I, I, could okay. be, I could always pretend I was anything. I was, I'm old. So that was not long before. I miss those days though. And everybody just rode their bike and your mom would say, you know, be back before sundown. Exactly. That was my life. That was my childhood. Yep. Oh, good times. Good times. All right. Second question. What is the household chore that you enjoy the least? Oh my. Well, household chore I enjoy the least, honestly, is just figuring out how to organize everything. It's like, I get oh so overwhelmed just by the sheer volume of what needs to find a place that I give up and punt too often. But yeah, that's, that's the one I hate the least is just trying to figure out how to organize all the clutter. 
There's so much clutter. First world problems, but yeah, we'll take it's a first world problem for sure. It is a first world problem for sure. I mean, there is something strange in our culture when we have people making money because they have storage facilities because we have too much stuff to put in our house. Exactly. No. A little simplicity, I think a little simplicity, but I said that to my wife and then she says, no. I mean, she's like, yes, I agree with you. Simplicity. And then I try to throw away her cassette tapes that were remixed that we don't even have a cassette player for. Right. Right. And she's like, no, you can't throw those out. <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? We don't, or even VHS stuff. We don't even have this anymore, but it is what it is. Yeah, I know. We're all, we always have plans for it. Yeah, we're going <laughs> to. <laughs> We're going to do it, but it never happens. All right. Number three. How about this one? How about what's the household chore you enjoy the most? Uh, the most is probably, um, this is going to be weird, but just doing the dishes. Uh, I think because I grew up doing it as a kid. And so there's something kind of relaxing about that. Uh, second would be you know, just mowing the lawn. I have a friend of mine who owns a bunch of McDonald's. This was from years ago when we were in Chicago together and he had, he had a different place, like a, yeah. a different home out in kind of out in the country. And I learned this and I, and being in the city, you don't have any grass really anywhere. I mean, just okay. see a little patch of yard. And, and I grew up as a farm kid, we had to mow all the time. And I remember asking him, I was like, Oh, can I go out to your house and just mow your yard? <laughs> and he's like, no. And, and I, and I was surprised because I thought, Oh, what a, you know, great thing would be this Thing for me to volunteer to do because who likes to mow their yard if you have to mow it all the time? And he goes, No, that's the only time where no one bugs me. Uh, <laughs> that, yeah. That's my time. <laughs> but I, I'm with you on that. I like doing the dishes because no one talks to me. I like it because it's short. I get it done and I feel like I've accomplished something. <laughs> oh, that's a good feeling. Okay. Number four, if you were an app, okay, a phone app, what app would you be and why? Uh, this is really boring, but I, I, my first thought was Notability. I use Notability all of the time as I keep I all of my meeting notes there. It's like, but you can also do art and you can draw and you can create and you can import and you can create all kinds of things. So it's functional. It gets a lot of stuff done, but it's also creative. I didn't even know that app existed. I'm just saying, it's the first one popped in my head. My son, again, that's when my son uh, said, hey, dad, you got to get this. And I now use it for all of my meetings. So. Now I'm going to check that out after we're done. Yeah. <laughs> All right, here we go. Number five. If you were a car, what kind of car would you be and why? If I was a car, I would. Uh, yeah, that's an impossible question. I well, I would be. Um, I would probably be a Jeep. Yeah, because. Well, where I live, I live in suburbia and Jeeps are a status symbol here. They're not used for off. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a rich high school kid, you've got a Jeep, right? Because that's kind of how that works around here. So I'm not sure what that says about me, but that's where I connect. Okay. You don't want it. I mean, you've got some photographs behind you, Colorado, Yellowstone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I have a desire to be that sort of thing, but uh, my Colorado experience is more like hiking and garden of the gods, you know, where they've got bathrooms oh. every 200 feet, you know, that's, sort of thing. But I have... <laughs> that's the most thing. It makes me stressful my, when I'm driving someplace and I don't know where I'm going to park and I don't know where the bathroom is. <laughs> that's just betrays my age. All right. Well, let's, let's jump in. Actually, we got a few things we're going to talk about today. We've got I mean, I've got two books here. I've got Rare Leadership in the Workplace and Rare Leadership. And we also got a little bit of Deeper Walk, which we've talked about in the past. But today we're going to focus a little bit on Rare Leadership. Now, what is 
Rare Leadership, and you co-authored this with Jim Wilder. So you have to forgive me if I say that you wrote this and it was Jim. I don't know who wrote what. But what is Rare Leadership and why is it important? Rare Leadership is really about maturity. All right. It asks the question, what separates the leaders we love to follow from the leaders we have to follow? And it's a one-word answer. And that is, are they mature? And so Dr. Wilder, who co-wrote it with me, is a neuroscience attachment theory expert. And he developed a system called the life model that is a, a maturity development system. And so what we did is we took his approach and we oriented it towards leadership and said, what have we learned from neuroscience and attachment theory about maturity development? And how does that impact the way people lead? Because if you go through the church, you go through nonprofits, you go into government, you go into hospitals, doesn't matter where you go, things are blowing up because of a lack of maturity in our leaders. Uh, So Jim is, you know, he thinks in terms of brain, you know, what's happening in the brain, what synapses are firing, what's happening here. I think in terms of acronyms and acrostics. So I took his ideas and put them into the um, acrostic rare, which stands for these are the four characteristics of mature leadership. And the first one is they remain remain relational. And uh, because if I don't remain relational, I am shutting down, I'm blowing up, I'm melting down. Uh, But whatever happens, you know, I'm, you lose me, my my relational self doesn't show up. So the second uh, characteristic is the A is act like yourself. And again, the idea here is some of us change our personality with every emotion that we feel. And so I am a totally different person when I'm angry, or I'm a totally different person when I'm sad, or I'm a totally different person when I'm afraid. And so what happens is if I'm the leader and my my whole persona changes with every emotion that I feel, then people walk on eggshells around me because they never know which leader they're going to get. So there has to be some, you know, it's not that I'm not affected by emotions, but they don't turn me into a different person. And so what you find with a lot of people who lack that level of maturity There'll often be somebody in the office who functions almost like a surrogate mom, and they 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 warn everybody what mood the boss is in today. You know, kind of yeah, watch where you step today because you know you're not going to like he's not in a good mood. And we've learned to kind of justify these things, excuse these things, but the idea is that these are these are really what make or break the culture that we're trying to build is the personal maturity. So then the third one is is return to joy. And that's the idea that joy is actually the fuel your brain wants to run on. It will run on fear when it has to, but it wants to run on joy. And so as a leader, I'm either going to motivate people with joy with joy or with fear. And I'm either going to motivate myself with joy or with fear. Now, we all do a little bit of both, but if I am routinely motivating myself with fear, I'm going to burn myself out. And if I'm routinely motivating my, my people with fear, I'm going to burn them out. So I need to, as a leader, be able to return to joy myself, and I need to be able to help my team recognize where they're at with their emotions, help them return to joy, and help all of us kind of do what we're doing because we love what we're doing and not because of the bad stuff that's going to happen if we don't. And then that leads to the E, and that is that we endure hardship well. And that is mature, immature people try to avoid hardship at all costs. (laughs) Uh, Mature people endure hardship well. And they, the, the well is basically defined by the first three characteristics. And that is when things get tough, I still remain relational. I still act like myself and I return to joy and I help people around me return to joy so that the best version of ourself is showing up. So that's real leadership in a nutshell. 
We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. You talk about this aspect. You said art. Let's. I'm sorry. I'm opening it up. It, it's been a little bit since I read this because I, I read this and then I read your other book. I read this one before that. But you're talking about rare leadership. So R is it what again? Remain relational is the first Re- one. Remain relational. So these are talking about our. I know Jim refers to our relational circuits, right? Our right. RCs are on or off. Yep. The one thing, and I kind of talked to Jim and Michael Hendricks about this is that the one thing I, I struggle with It's talking about brain science. I mean, it's brain science and there's a whole nother language that's needed to sure. get this. Describe what these relational circuits are, or maybe this is a question for Jim, but what are these relational circuits? Like how do we remain relational? What's the other alternative if we don't? So um, the way I describe it is there's basically an on off switch on the right side of your you know brain. And uh, when that switch is on, my relational self is present. When I am relational, oh, I use the acrostic cake to, uh, to evaluate this. So it's really clear. And that is when, I, when I'm relational, I'm curious. I'm curious how you feel. I'm curious what you think, right? When I'm not relational, I'm not curious. <laughs> I think I have you all figured out. I don't want to hear what you have to say. You know, I lose all curiosity about you. So that's an on-off switch. So when my relational circuits are basically when this whole side of my brain is functioning properly and has it shut down. So you think about this on off switch. It's a little bit like when it goes off, it's like my brain is going into a cramp. And when my brain goes into a cramp and things start shutting down on this side and the switch goes off, I lose access to the higher level brain functions. And it's at the higher level brain functions that I remain relational and act like myself and live with joy. So as this cramps up and I lose access to those higher level functions, I become less relational. I stop acting like myself and I lose my joy. And some of us just live there and some of us get stuck there for long periods of time. And that's why we go to counseling. Like I, I you know, we don't go to counseling because we have too much joy, right? We go to counseling because we can't find our joy. You know, the, the technical term that most people know is amygdala, right? The amygdala is like the fight or flight part. So what happens with the amygdala is really what is causing this thing to, you know, cramp up and shut down or stay on. And so the amygdala is assessing every attachment that I form. And that assessment will is one of three things. It's either good, it's bad, or it's scary. So if it's good, that's easy for me to stay relational, act like myself. This is all fun. This is all good. That's no problem. If it's bad, it tends to trigger what we call low energy emotions, which uh, low energy emotions would be like shame 
or this is bad. I'm bad. This, you know, I'm doing bad things or disgust. Like I'm disgusted with myself. I'm disgusted with you. That's a low energy emotion, uh, sadness and despair. Those are like the four classic low energy emotions. If the amygdala says this is scary, then that's when I get fight or flight and I will become angry. I want this to stop or I become scared. I just got to get out of here. And so when I'm, I'm running on a lot of, of, of fear, then I have high energy going on in my body. So where this gets really complicated, if it's not already, where, where this starts to get uh, is, uh, is that you can have high energy and low energy emotions at the same time. So to your body, it's a little bit like somebody stepping on the gas and stepping on the brakes at the same time. It's like, I've got fear and anger that are stepping on the gas. And I've also got shame and despair that are stepping on the brakes. And so my body can literally shake, right? Because I've got so much stress and so much pressure under here. And so as the way this affects every relationship we have, it affects all of life. And so maturity is maturity. We're just going to take maturity and apply it to leadership. But so you got to understand maturity first so that you can understand how this directly impacts uh, leadership and how it applies. So I said cake. I just gave you the one. It's curiosity. It's appreciation. It's kindness. And it's eye contact. Mm -hmm. So basically, the idea here is that when my switch is on, my relational circuits are running, it's easy for me to do those four things. I can be curious about you. I can appreciate what you bring to the table, appreciate what what. Uh, you do, I can be kind much more easily and it's easy to make eye contact. When my switch goes off, one of the first things I often lose is eye contact. I, I just find myself looking at anybody but you. Mm -hmm. uh, so you probably heard your wife say, would you please look at me? Right. <laughs> it's the, mm -hmm. uh, right. It's that uh, eye contact thing has been lost. And when my, when that gets triggered and my, that switch goes down, I normally kind person can't, think of a way to be kind right now. <laughs> it's mm. like, I can't even think of what it looks like to be kind to you right now. I just am so upset with you or whatever it is. So I've lost that um, ability. So what we tell people then is, is that you get these circuits back on by, first of all, recognizing that they've gone off, kind of break eye contact with the person. And now you're in problem solving mode in your brain. And the problem you're trying to solve is how do I find some curiosity, appreciation, and kindness? And then once I can find those and my relational circuits start flowing again, I, and, I, and that switch pops back on, now I can make eye contact again, re-engage. And sometimes that takes seconds, and sometimes it takes minutes, and sometimes it takes days. And so now and then, you have, it depends on how developed your capacity to do it is. And that's really one of the hallmarks of maturity, is that mature people do this quickly, and immature people often get stuck here and it changes everything. I just want to fight for a cause If I get to know my purpose I don't know if I like it or not God, I know that you're the answer When I'm searching my mind I forgot When I'm walking through the fire I just look toward the light when it's high um, <laughs> there's so much that you've already said that made me stop and go, oh no, am I not the mature person? Like even you mentioned the cake. I'm like, there are times where I'm like, I'm not curious about right now what you have to say. I don't want to know, but I mean, how do we remain relational in that way? I, I know you've alluded to it already, but when we go into that, and I think Jim calls it enemy mode, when the relationship circuit shut off, how do we then remain relational with people and stay curious? So. 
if you have lost it, then by definition, you are, you've lost it, right? You're not there. So the question is, how do you get it back? Well, that's what we mean by the second R, the return to joy. How do I get back from here? And so sometimes I just need a break, right? I need to, sometimes it's like, I'll find my curiosity in five minutes. I just need a break. Sometimes that break is I avoid eye contact. Like Jim has described doing this in counseling sessions, right? It's like you hear somebody describing a problem that you've heard a thousand other people describe. You kind of know where this is going and you can lose your curiosity. So when that would happen, he'd look away. He said, you know, he would think to himself, what can I be curious about? And then when he'd find something, he'd remake eye contact and they, and his relational self would be present again. So the goal here is not to not feel things, but to remain relational even when I do feel things. And that's the goal. So we, we put it this way. Let's keep relationships bigger than problems. Hmm. Uh, because when, when my, the, the other thing that happens when my relational circuits go off is that I, and I get into enemy mode and I'm doing things without my relational self present, I, I'm much more likely to care only about winning and to be more interested just in what is best for me. And I stop caring about what is best for you. And so that's what defines enemy mode. Enemy mode is where I only care about my own victory here and what's going to be best for me. And I no longer care about you. So now then we need a break, right? So a pause, and that could be a, a, like I said, just a 30 second pause while I kind of find it in this conversation, or it could be, you know what? I really need a timeout. Can we come back to this conversation tomorrow? So there have been times, for instance, in, in marriage where my wife and I, it's getting toward the end of the day. We're like, we're either going to stay up all night, you know, arguing about this, or we just need to agree to keep the relationship bigger than the problem, put this thing on hold, take a break, do something that'll, that will be happy together, you know, that'll help us be happy together. And then let's bring this up tomorrow and deal with it another time. So that's, that's like, you know, I, we call that, let's just keep the relationship bigger than the problem. So you got to recognize when you have lost it and you are not doing those things. So we do use cake as the evaluation tool. Am I curious? Am I appreciative? Am I kind? Can I make eye contact? And if I've lost those things, that means I'm offline. I get them back on online by taking a break and finding them. And if I can do it in one conversation, great. If I can't, then I may need to excuse myself, take it, you know, and uh, go find. As you're, you're mentioning that the relationship is bigger than the problem. I, I like that description. We've always had in our marriage, where we would say that we don't go to bed angry. And no matter what, we wouldn't go to bed angry. And I remember sharing that in a sermon and this older man walks up to me, saunters up to me afterwards. And he just looks at me and he goes, three days. And I, I, you know, I was looking at him quizzically. I didn't understand what he was talking about. And he turned to walk away and I said, three days, three days, what? He goes, that's how long we've been awake. (laughs) Meaning that. Meaning that we haven't gone to bed yet because we're still fighting. I mean, he was a jokester, but uh, go back for a moment. Some people still have a very, they don't have a clear definition of joy. And you, you mentioned the difference between the brain operating on joy or fear. Let's define joy. How do you define joy? So from a brain perspective, joy is based in attachment. It is a happy to see you attachment. And so it's the feeling that we get. Right. And so it's not a choice the way that we tend to be taught. Uh, there are choices we can make that make it more likely, but it's, uh, you know, if you're a grandparent and your grandkids walk in the room, you don't go, oh, they're here. I better choose to be happy. Right. <laughs> it's this reaction that you have. Oh, it's you. And I'm, I'm genuinely happy to see you. Sometimes we can have that with somebody we just met. Oh, it's like, oh, I remember you. Yeah. We had mm. a good positive encounter and, and I'm feeling a little bit of joy right now. So that's joy is that 
feeling that comes in my brain when I'm happy to be with somebody. This is why I can even be grieving a loss of something, but be happy to be with my wife when she sits down next to me and we're there together. There can still Mm -hmm. be some joy, even in the grief. And it's actually that joy that gives me the strength to deal with the hardships of life. So we would say that the key to enduring hardship well is really cultivating the ability to have joyful relationships in our lives and maximize the, the joy potential in our relationships. So in another, yeah, in another book I wrote, I called it the joy gap. That is, there's this gap between moments of shared joy and the bigger that gap gets, the uh, easier it is for negative emotions to uh, take over. Have you seen the home of the summer? Summer is no comparison. Breathing deeply, sun and distant. Sleeping at last, peaceful What? is the difference between how brain science defines joy and we would biblically define joy? That's a good question because what happens when we go to defining terms, we tend to read our own definitions into them. Of course. Yeah. And so what happens is if I have come to believe that joy is a choice, then when I see the biblical word joy, I go, Oh, well, see, there it is. And then it's the same thing with love is love a choice or is love attachment? Both. Right. It's like, there's times when I choose to do the loving thing but I can't just choose an attachment. So an attachment has to be developed. It has to be grown. It has to be discovered. It has to be nurtured. So at the heart of who God is, this word chesed is an attachment word. It's the idea that God is so bonded to us that he wants what is good for us, right? And so I do what's good for some people simply because of the attachment I have with them. There's some people because of you know our bond, I'll do things for them I wouldn't do for other people. Right. That's kind of what chesed is. It's like because of our attachment, I'm going to do something for you. I wouldn't, you know, just necessarily do for anybody, but I'm doing it because I love you. So that's a little bit different than I'm going to choose to love you right now. Right. No, it's like I already love you, but I'm going to now make some choices because I love you. So joy is an attachment word. And I would say biblically speaking, it's also an attachment word. So what's really fascinating is, is how connected it is to grace. Because you know, grace, I, I, and forgive me, it's been one minute since I looked at it, but like charis in, right? So in charis and, and karin are related words, one's joy, one's grace. And the idea is that grace is an attachment word. And it's the idea that God freely attaches to us, you know, because of what Jesus did. And because of that, there can be joy in my walk with God, because I know that God is happy to see me. And I say, this is crucial because I think that one of the biggest barriers in our walk with God is that we're fear bonded to God instead of joy bonded to him. We don't see God as being happy to be with us until we perform. We're, or we look at God as he's got to choose to love me today. He doesn't really love me. Right. And so we read a lot of our own stuff into that. So that's a long answer. But joy, from a biblical perspective, I would say is actually the same. It's still an attachment based word that is related to uh, relational happiness. So where do you find joy most often in the Bible? It's in the face of God, right? So it tends to get translated in English as the presence of God, but the Hebrew word there is face. And I don't think that's an accident. So they make the face of God shine upon you. Well, wasn't, I don't think it's the Moses shining face that we're talking about there. I think it's a joyful face. Like I'm, you know, like your face lights up when you're with somebody you're happy to see. And I think this is guys, you know, they may God's face light up with joy when he sees you. Right. That's a great blessing. And I think that's what that's talking about. And in Psalm 16, you know, David says, 
I find joy in your face, right? Eternal pleasures in your right hand. And so I think that that's part of it too. Why do I find joy in God's face? You know, it's because humanly speaking, I get it from people's eyes. You know, their eyes light up. And it's the first place that babies look, you know, when they see you, they're looking at your eyes and what they're looking for is, are you happy to see me? And if you're happy to see me, then bonding is really easy. (laughs) All of that is so incredible to think about how we are wired for joy and and for the belonging aspect. And you, you talk about this in the book. I mean, belonging is really one of our core needs. God's made us to want to belong and, and have that desire. Why have we missed this so much, though, this idea of belonging in the church and in leadership? Well, I think the main reason that we've missed it is that there was a, an enlightenment influence that came into us. Like we, we fought against the enlightenment, but mm-hmm. it influenced us in subtle ways we didn't recognize. And one of them was that out of the enlightenment came the idea that reason is the core thing about being human. But the second generation of the enlightenment moved past reason and said it's actually the will is the most fundamental thing about being human. And so that philosophical movement is called voluntarism. And what voluntarism taught us was that everything boils down to choice. And so we sort of read that back into the Bible and we turned everything into a choice, right? We turned salvation into a choice, make a decision for Christ, right? We turn, you know, as opposed to attach to Christ, be grafted into the vine, let that attachment grow. It became transactional. So choices turn everything transactional. It's very difficult to have a lot of joyful bonding attached, you know, relationship when my whole relationship is just, I'll do this for you, if you do that for, for me, and you know, you give me money, I'll do that, or whatever it is. It's all tit for tat. That's that's transactional. What we're talking about here is, you know, bigger than that. So anyway, back to volunteerism though. It's this idea of the will. And so what is out of volunteerism that we can begin saying love is a choice, right? Joy is a choice, salvation, everything became a choice. And so now we read the Bible and we just see choice in it. When if we actually read closely, there's nothing about choice in that text. We've just sort of read it into there. And it's not that choices aren't important. Don't get me wrong. It's not like it's attachment or choice. But the brain, I think, helps us understand this. And that attachment comes first in the brain and then choices. And I think that's the way God designed it. And that is that he wants us, because of our attachments, to make loving choices. But we don't have to just choose to create a loving attachment to my wife every day. I have that when I wake up. I have to sometimes remind myself that it exists and make choices consistent with it. But I'm not just choosing to start loving her. When you talk about the believing in the attachment aspect of things, and that influences our choices, do you think that that's one of the things that's been missing a lot in the church because we focus so much on the choice aspect as an individual and not as belonging and attaching to a group of people? Yeah, no question. The, the the emphasis on choice slides very naturally into performance, right? And that is making the right choices, makes you know, is performing the right way. What I love, you mentioned uh, Michael Hendricks and uh, Jim Wilder, their book, uh, The Other Happy Church. What Michael did such a genius job uh, in his imagery there of the soil. The idea of the soil, and you look back on your life, you go, when did I grow the most as a Christian? When did I when did I find it the easiest to grow? And it was almost always when I was in a group that was happy to be together. And like, you know, I was, me and my people, we were doing this together, right? That's when I flourish. And it's because all the nutrients of that relational joy fuel growth. Well, what happens is if you say, well, that's a nice icing on the cake, if you can get there, 
But what we really need is a disciplined, you know, quiet time and practicing these spiritual disciplines, making sure that you're making all the right choices and doing all these other things. What we've essentially done is we, we, if you remove joy and relational joy out of the discipleship process, it becomes draining, right? It becomes a lot of hard work and it's all on you. So it's not that those things aren't important, but if I'm doing them out of, it's, it's, it's like the difference is the joy, the foundation, or is the joy, the icing on the cake, right? And I was like, if joy is actually at the foundation of what, what's going on, those, all those other things just become much easier. Without them, I need a ton of accountability. And accountability is basically fear. It's like, if you don't do this, I will do that. So what we're trying to do here is say, well, it's not that accountability is always bad, but there's something better. And that is that if I, as a leader, if I can create a culture where people are bonded together in joy, then they don't need nearly as much accountability because in fact, I've got to tell them to go home. Okay, that's enough. We've been doing this long enough. Everybody, you know, take a break. Uh, because I'm doing what I love with people that I love and we're in this together and there's an energy that is created. Um, it's when you're lacking joy and when you're lacking that energy that you have to build everything on accountability. Is that possible in a church that's larger? Yes, because it, it happens in spheres. So senior pastor and exec team build joy with each other. That has to be a joy-based culture that passes then. So then when the other execs are meeting with their team, that joy gets passed on. And when others get, then that joy gets passed on. In other words, every leader is responsible for creating a joy-based culture in the teams that they lead. Now, in that joy-based culture, I'm just saying that's first, it's the priority, then comes, okay, here's, and here's what we need to accomplish. And this is why we need to get there. But if you flip those, then what happens is everybody's doing everything out of fear of what will happen if I don't. And I'll be honest, you know, there's some big churches that are uh, are notorious for being chewing up and spitting out staff, right? So why are they why are they doing this? Why are they chewing up and spitting out staff? It's because they've lost the joy component to the leadership, and they're not leading with maturity. And so, in the absence of joy and maturity, the only thing left to you is fear, and uh, it's like get this done or else. And so there are. You know, don't get me wrong. You know, we got you know, salespeople got to bring in money. Coaches got to win. You know, people got to uh, people got to eat. Right? You got to get this stuff out there. So there are things that have to happen. But even there, if you lose sight of why you're doing it in the first place, and you're only doing it to hit the numbers, and you're only doing it to get there, the joy gets sucked out of it, and pretty soon you don't want to do that anyway. You're just going to go do something else. So the idea here is we got to find a way to keep joy at the core of what's going on, even as we're pursuing excellence and pursuing the numbers. I don't know about you, but I think that I may need to go back and listen to that one again. There's so much stuff and it's only the first half of the conversation. I mean, can you believe that? Marcus is just filled with information. Every time that we get in a call, it's like, it just keeps coming. It keeps coming and it keeps coming. It's really like a fire hose. I, I do enjoy talking to Marcus. We have so much in common and he brings so much to the table that I haven't thought about, but he does it in a way that we can grasp. And that's what I really appreciate about him, that we can grab a hold of it, take it and use it right away. I know I give him a hard time about the acronyms because he is the king of the acronyms. But today we heard two gems, rare and cake. Did you get that? Rare. That's remain relational, act like yourself, return to joy and endure hardship well. And then we have those four keys to being a good leader. But really, if you noticed, they are straight from the life model approach and they apply to our everyday lives, don't they? I mean, they help us to have better interactions and to become better people. 
So how do we remain relational? It's cake. Stay curious, have appreciation or show appreciation, kindness, and eye contact. Simple. We could camp out there for a couple of weeks, couldn't we? I mean, it's incredible. If we just took this approach to our relationships with our family, friends, church, you name it, wouldn't we all look a little bit more like Jesus? But maybe even more powerful is the connection between attachment and choice. So much research is coming out right now about attachment and how it affects us. I mean, when we reduce everything to choice, we set ourselves up for failure. We fail to recognize that faith is much more than something we try on our set aside as our mood or circumstances dictate. Paul repeatedly speaks about our union with Christ in Romans, Colossians, Ephesians come to mind. We are attached to him. And I really do love and appreciate Marcus's reminder about the connection of joy and grace. God attaches himself to us in Christ, joy and grace. So how can you take these principles into your relationships this week? We'd love to hear from you. You can feel free to contact me, Travis at apolloswater.org. I'd love to hear from you. I want to thank our Apollos Water team for making this happen. And if you feel that God is calling you to help support us, that we might be able to water the world for Christ together, then go online to apolloswater.org, click the support us button, and then click the amount that works for you. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollo's Water. Stay watered, everybody. And I'm on a roll.